Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. In this edition of Dig It, we chat to Chief Executive of the National Garden Scheme, George Plumtree. George is a well-respected gardening author, writing regularly for Country Life, Homes and Gardens, The Daily Telegraph, and in between 1993 and 1996, he was the gardening correspondent for The Times. He's a writer of not just one, but a trio of books on cricket, the golden age of cricket, homes of cricket, and cricket cartoons and characters. George, it's an absolute delight to welcome you to our podcast, our Dig It podcast today. And where do we find you on this uh, quite glorious sunny winter's day? Hi, Chris. And I must say, it's an absolute honour for me to be your guest on your podcast. And you find me at my place of work at the Office of the National Garden Scheme at Hatchlands Park, which is in Surrey. It's the National Trust property uh, at Clandon, where we've been happy tenants of the National Trust for, I think, about 30 years. I haven't been here for all that time, but I think that's about how long we've been here. Brilliant. Excellent. And, George, before we start chatting about the National Garden Scheme, your love of cricket, wow, you've um, written three books. Do you enjoy playing cricket? Or I mean, I used to love it as a game. It was one of the best games for a lovely sunny afternoon. What could be better, going out and messing around on a cricket pitch for a few hours? It's one of the best. So where where did you play? Were you a batter or a bowler? Uh, I, I... I hasten to say that my my playing career was 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 um, enjoyable, but not particularly distinguished. I was a, I was a bit of an all rounder. Um, okay. <laughs> I played I played at school. I played at university. Um, I never I never made the dizzy heights of the first eleven, but I love it as a sort of as you say enjoyable pastime. And um, and I got interested in and really. Um, in terms of the cricket writing, I actually got introduced to it. My first sort of proper job was working as the assistant to a very distinguished cricket journalist and broadcaster called Jim Swanson. Oh, and I worked yeah. as his assistant on a huge encyclopedia of cricket uh, in the sort of late 70s. And that led to the books that I did myself, the three that you mentioned. But he, he really kicked off my um, my cricket writing career. And actually, it was during that time that I started getting interested in and looking for opportunities to write about gardens, which was always very much the subject that I, I was interested in. Mm. And what got you into gardening then? Can I ask that? Well, I think it, it was as it was my parents. I was lucky enough to be brought up in a house with a beautiful garden. Well, beautiful by the time my parents had finished. It was when they moved in uh, because the whole place was wrecked. We were about... Home, my family home is about eight miles from the coast near Dover, sort of between okay. Canterbury and Dover in South East Kent. Yep. So the whole place was requisitioned by the military in 1939 and not released till the late 40s, by which time it was all in a bit of a mess. Right. And there was the remnants of a lovely garden, wall gardens, some nice old plants. And my mother, from, from day one, very enthusiastic and ended up a very expert gardener. And it was really from them their work on the garden that 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 i my love of gardening was born absolutely brilliant okay thank you george could you tell us a little bit about the history of the national garden scheme we're all familiar with that wonderful yellow book but perhaps you could uh, sort of take us back in time and uh, give us a little bit of a, a trot through history yeah i i would love to because it is a rather 
a rather amazing story, and and it, it, a lot of people are surprised to hear that it didn't actually start out being organised by gardening people at all. It started as a fundraising mechanism for a nursing charity, the Queen's Nursing Institute, um, who in the 1920s, when we started, 20 years before the foundation of the National Health Service, the Queen's Nursing Institute effectively ran, looked after, managed, paid for the whole network of what's called district nursing or community nursing. And they, one of their trustees had the clever idea when they had a fundraising campaign that they would invite people they knew to open their gardens and raise money for charity. And it says a lot for the persuasiveness of the people involved because that was decided in 1926. And by the summer of 1927, they had persuaded the owners, owners of 600 gardens, or 608 to be precise, oh. to open their gardens for a day in the summer of 1927. They all charged a one shilling admission and they raised £8,000. Wow. And I think what was rather fascinating from day one was that it was very much conceived as something for everybody. You know, in the 1920s, there were lots of social pastimes that were quite exclusive and they were limited. You know, who could do them was restricted. And the National Garden Scheme set up from day one to be as inclusive as it possibly could. You know, one shilling for charity was, for most people, not a, an affordable afternoon out. And we've sort of tried to stay true to that philosophy ever since. And I think over the, over the years, I think it's been pretty successful. Without a doubt. I mean, I love going around oh, our yeah. local town in Northampton to look at the uh, gardens that are open Me under too. the scheme. And I think Chris does similar uh, yeah, thing fantastic. around you know, Buckinghamshire, don't you, yeah, Chris? I do and, indeed. But yes. it, you talked briefly about your parents having a wonderful garden and your mother restoring this garden. I should imagine it was rather unkempt by when they inherited the, uh, the garden and she restored it to a far better state. Is, is that how you came across the scheme or...? It, it, it was exactly, uh, and so they started gardening there at Goodmanston, as it's called, uh, the, our home in in the, the late fifties, um, and and my mother got sort of seriously keen in the sixties. But I mean, to give you an idea of what it was like, there's a rather wonderful wall garden in three sections, which has got the church tower as a very convenient sort of feature at the far end, and. Yep. For most of my early childhood, the third, the largest section at the far end was given over to commercial Christmas trees because they didn't know what else to do with it. And then they went, and so slowly that uh, they they restored it area by area. And they started opening the garden for the National Garden Scheme in 1970 uh, when I was 14. And so, I mean, I can remember regularly, you know, Sunday mornings we would be out on me and my brothers i've got four brothers would yeah. be out on our bicycles with a pile of yellow arrows <laughs> under our arms dispatched the signposts around the local lane network uh, putting them up uh, guiding people in Brilliant. what was rather fascinating was that one of the great uh, sort of uh, the bonuses that my parents had in their work in the garden is that my great aunt who had been previous the, the previous owner with her husband before the before the war in the 1920s and 30s. We always knew that Aunt Emmy, as she was called, was a very good gardener. And there are some fantastic plants 
some quite unusual that she planted. And but what I discovered when I became chief executive here, one of the great treasures of the National Garden Scheme is our A5 card index, which which lists every single garden opening day and how much was raised on on these cards up until nineteen ninety four when it became digital. I looked up Goodnesson and I saw that Aunt Emmy opened for two years in 1930 and 31. 32, her husband died, so that's why they stopped. And then it, it didn't open again until 1970 when my parents started. And there are lots of gardens with amazing stories like that that opened in our early years and then might have stopped and then come, come back in again. Mm, that's brilliant. And I guess now mm. the, the records all computerised, so it's a bit easier to hunt through and find the information. No, it is easy, but also the other thing that we did, because we're very close to Clandon Park, where that terrible fire took place. Yep. And we did a sort of a sort of disaster scenario uh, meeting not long afterwards, and we decided that the one absolutely priceless asset that we have here is is our card index, and it, if that went up in flames, it would be a disaster. So we digitised the whole thing, and it is now available in digital format. It took us about a year to get it done, but it's very worthwhile. And mm. it's lovely because it means now that, you know, somebody comes back into the scheme and we can send the garden owners the cards showing, you know, your garden opened in 1927, <laughs> our first year. They get very excited. How fascinating. <laughs> That's brilliant. What a lovely resource for you to have here. Yeah, brilliant. No, it is. It's wonderful. So, George, the National Garden Scheme has been going for, well, well, well over 90 years now, hasn't it? It's raised... I, the, the figure yeah. I've got is sixty million pounds um, for nursing and health charities. It is. It's now just nudged over sixty-seven million pounds. Wow. Um, and we're, we're giving away um, for the, quite a few years now. We've given away in the region of three million pounds a year to our beneficiaries. Um, yeah, and, and all of it raised by people at their gardens. It, it's absolutely incredible. It, it never ceases to amaze me. I was going to say, and some of the, the charities, the main charities who are the beneficiaries, uh, George, if we could maybe yeah. mention those. I mean, I can indeed, because it's interesting in, in, in that we are still very much a supporter of nursing. That is our major beneficiary group, so to speak. So we, we were part of the Queen's Nursing Institute right up until 1979, by which time, and virtually all the money still went to them. We did, we did set up a partnership with the National Trust. Uh, we were a very early funder of the National Trust. Uh, um, rather fascinatingly, in 1947, the National Trust set up a campaign to acquire Hidcote, which they actually ended up doing in 1948. What was significant about Hidcote was it was the very first property the National Trust acquired primarily for its gardens. All their other properties to date and virtually the great majority of them since, have all been houses which, which might or might not have an interest in garden. Hidcote, they wanted it for the garden. And we gave them a substantial donation. In return, National Trust Properties agreed to open gardens as part of the scheme. And we continued giving them funding right up until a few years ago. So, the, the majority of the donations all went to nursing, to the Q, Queen's Nursing Institute and to local nursing organisations that they looked after. In 1979, we, the scheme had become really quite big. I mean, well over a thousand gardens opening regularly. 
Um, and the Q&I decided to set it up as a separate charity. So in 1980, we became the National Garden Scheme Charitable Trust. And at that point, the trustees started looking to expand. And so a few years later, they started funding Macmillan, the nurse cancer nursing charity. And we funded Macmillan ever since. And then about 10 years after that, they decided to fund a group which includes Marie Curie, Hospice UK, which is a sort of umbrella support charity for hospices, and a, a wonderful caring charity called Carers Trust. And then most recently in that group of the nursing health charities, we support a charity called Parkinson's UK, which, as its name suggests, looks after um, people living with Parkinson's. So that is our main beneficiary group. We give them long-term support over many, many years. Um, Alongside that, in more recent years, we have been very strong champions of the whole idea of the health and well-being benefits of garden, which everybody is into today. We commissioned a now quite important report from the think tank, the, the King's Fund, which they entitled Gardens and Health. And it sort of brought together all the research about the health and well-being benefits of gardens. That was published in 2016. And in the same year, we committed, or my trustees committed, to give special donations to projects which promoted or in, in sort of embodied the, the whole the health benefits of gardening. So the first one we gave was to a charity you might know of, which is called Horatio's Garden, which builds gardens for final injuries unit. There's a garden at Stoke Mandeville, probably not yeah, that not far, that far away from, from us. you guys. Indeed. Just down the road, yes. Um, we now fund, we are Horatio's biggest single supporter. We give 25% of each garden's cost as it comes online. We fund gardens for Maggie's centres, for, for hospices. So that's our gardens and health. And then the other main group is that we do like to support getting people into gardening careers. Our, our garden owners, you know, all the money is raised at gardens and they like the idea that we support uh, gardening trainees so we have a, a a selection of projects we support the professional gardeners trust in their uh, trainee programs we support a trainee at the national botanic garden of wales we support a trainee at the garden museum and, and we've just entered into a, a fairly long-term partnership with english heritage to supply supply a good proportion of the money they need for their apprentice uh, trainee program so they're, they're the sort of main three tranches of, of where the money goes every year. Pretty Nursing and health, long-term, yeah. gardens and health, and training gardeners. Yeah. That's an amazing range of societies and organisations you've been helping, isn't it? And like you say, sort of, I mean, yeah. what a wonderful scheme. But can I just go back to Hidcott? Uh, obviously, that's a fantastic garden. Any chance you can name drop any other fantastic gardens that are open that maybe our listeners haven't thought of uh, to go and have a look at? Well, thoughts of where do you want me to start? I mean, what, <laughs> what's always fascinating we like to think that over the years, most of the best gardens, it used to be just England and Wales. Of course, there's Scotland's Garden Scheme, which is a very similar but completely independent charity, but set up with the same similar beneficiary charities, similar ideas. Um, so there's them. But we like to think that over the years, 
the great majority of the really lovely gardens in England and Wales have all at some stage opened for us. What I love is the fact that of the 600 odd gardens that opened for us in 1927, rather amazingly, this year, and it's a pretty consistent number, 76 of them are still opening. Yes. Many of them still in the ownership of the same families. Wow. So you've got a garden like Ramster in Surrey, which has opened every single year, Hosnet Hall in Shropshire, Arley Hall in Cheshire. These are all gardens which have opened for us throughout the 95 or however many years it is, which is pretty amazing. And that flagged up in their entry. Um, and and I th But I think today what is rather fascinating about the there is, as one of your questions suggests, the, the diversification of our portfolio is a, a constantly moving piece nowadays. Yeah, the, in the first few you know decades, say that certainly before the war in the 20s and 30s and in the 50s and 60s, it would be true to say that most of the gardens that opened were rural properties. Right. A lot of them were houses in the country, quote unquote. Some of them were great big stately home type houses in the country, but there were houses in the country or they were nice cottages or old rectories or whatever. And they, they were the people who opened. We still have a great many of them and they have wonderful gardens, but we have now have very small urban gardens, all sorts of, of others, um, which we can either talk about now or, or a bit later on. Mm. Um, a, a really interesting stat, uh, we have an amazing person called Penny Snell, who has been chairman at one stage. She, she's still county organiser for London, that, which is London for us, it's everything inside the M25. Yep. And when she started in the early 80s, there were something like 35 gardens opening in that area. Today, there are over 250. Wow. Gosh. Mm. So we've, we've really grown that portfolio of smaller gardens, gardens that open together in a village as a group. We have groups of allotments. Uh, we have community gardens. And we, 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 we support now a huge number of communities. That's another a slightly separate part of, of, of what we support financially. We support hundreds of community garden projects now all over the country. Brilliant. George, I'm sort of thinking back, you know, nearly three years ago, um, obviously we had the, the start of the pandemic, uh, COVID-19. My question is what, what happened to those, you know, 3,500 or so or more gardens, those privately owned gardens, going through the pandemic, what did you have to, how did you address well, that situation? We very much did because, I mean, the, the, the 2020 was the first ever year that we were not able to open any gardens anywhere for an extended period of time. We were all closed. I remember it very distinctly on that weekend of what, well, I think it was the 23rd of March, and we did not reopen any gardens for just over two months until the very beginning of June. We were poised, some gardens had opened for snowdrops, we were poised for the season, and suddenly they were closed. And it was quite traumatic for everybody. And in the circumstances, they did the most incredible things. Um, a number of the garden owners went out and made videos, which we then posted and people watched and made donations. People put up tables with plants for sale at, at their 
garden gates or at the end of the road uh, with an honesty box for people. And as a result, we actually managed to raise a reasonable amount of money from that. Then gardens started reopening in a very restricted way. Uh, and that was the same right through the rest of 2020. You know, we could only open gardens with people having limited numbers and they all had to book a ticket online in advance. And that continued well into 2021. So it was, I mean, even in through World War II, gardens opened every year through the war. And so it was the very first time that they were all closed. Um, mm. I think also that it was, it, it was collectively, um, there was a combination that our garden owners were, were, were you know, very upset they weren't able to welcome visitors, but also they realised quite how important their gardens became. Um, to their general state of, of well-being. I mean, we then, at the end of the summer, we produced a rather fascinating little report called uh, Gardens and Coronavirus, and we filled it with first-hand evidence of what our, our garden owners were saying about this. I'm just thinking about the garden centre here. We obviously closed on the 23rd. Yep, we opened, yeah, <laughs> indeed, a memorable Thursday, yep. and then we, we opened, I think it was early part of May, uh, and it was, you know, obviously different times, wasn't it? And uh, everybody had sort of adjusted to, to those conditions. Well, we, we were adjusting. It wasn't that we, we understood what we were, what was happening, I suppose. Um, but thinking about then, the the demographics of gardeners has changed, hasn't it, George? And uh, yeah. what, what yeah. do you think about attracting your younger audience to their, their gardens and as well as visiting? What, how do you think that's going to move over the next uh, decade or so? I, th I think I would be pretty confident, I think, that we're going to see a steady increase of younger people's interest for a number of reasons. I think one of the things that's been happening quite slowly over a number of years, and, and the, the pandemic accelerated this, is that idea of, of what I call demystifying gardening. There's no doubt, you know, not many years ago, gardening was actually quite intimidating. For a lot of people, there was a sense that if you didn't know a certain amount of stuff, you couldn't be gardening because you didn't know how to do it. I think that is becoming less and less, which is a great thing. And people are much more prone to say, I'm interested, I want to give it a go, and it doesn't bother me. I don't know the Latin names of anything I'm growing. I think also younger generations are really interested in the whole idea of growing to consume growing their own food, growing fresh produce. And what I love about the Indians is the idea that people can go to a garden and they can engage, chat with the garden owner, and they can say, oh, you've got amazing potatoes, new potatoes. How do you do that? Or I particularly like that plant in this corner in front of your house. What is it? And could I grow it at home? So there's a lot more of that, that engagement. And I, I think we will see, and we're seeing, a, a, you know, it's not a revolution, but we are definitely seeing um, an increase in the number of younger people visiting, which is wonderful. I mean, the thing about gardening, if you're going to do it keenly, is, and particularly if you're going to do it and, and want to open your garden, it's actually quite time consuming. And... You know, if you're a if you're a young couple with small children, 
there are only so many hours in the day, most of which you're spending at work or looking after your children. And your gardening has got to come second. But I think there are increasing numbers of people who want to fit it into that sort of busy way of life. I think that's very true. But equally, have you noticed sort of the dare I say it, the sort of suburb, uh, suburban sort of semi-detached household that open, has opened their gardens over the years. Have you seen much of a shift between the sort of the ways the gardens have been used to maybe more spaces being devoted to barbecues and patios yeah. and furniture, uh, big sheds uh, rather than, I'm guessing, 50 years ago where it was all lawns and maybe rose garden or something like that. Uh, uh, have you noticed any changes like that? I, I think I think for the for our gardens that open, I wouldn't say it's noticeable. We've, we've seen a shift towards using a garden in a more, what you might call, socially social way as you're suggesting but for, for entertaining hard landscaping barbecues etc what we have definitely seen is is the shift to gardening more sustainably um you know no garden that opens for the NGS is too small to have a patch of wildflower meadow today absolutely yeah. not you know we i can into gardens and somebody proudly shows me a plot that that's six foot by six foot and that is their wildflower meadow Yep. yep. And that's absolutely great. And of course, you know, uh, gardening in a way that attracts wildlife with ponds, you know, the, the whole, the whole sort of port selection of water, bug hotels, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, which is great. So we've seen a lot of those changes, and I think they will continue. And um, and we we encourage them. You know, we have a a sustainability statement on our website. Yeah. We are not about telling people what to do. That that's not the not not the national garden scheme. You know, yeah. We're a vehicle for people to enjoy opening their gardens and sharing it on a completely voluntary basis with their visitors. But we are encouraging people to garden in a certain way, in certain sustainable ways, definitely, and showing you know highlighting the benefits of biodiversity. Excellent, because that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Was um, is there like a criteria that you have to uh, tick eight to eight out of ten boxes <laughs> on? Sort of, you must have an area of grass, you must have a flower bed, you must have a bean, <laughs> or something like that. Or is it literally any gardener can say yes, I'd like to join in and show how proud I am of my garden? It is pretty much. It's a sort of what I would call a. We certainly don't have set criteria, so there is no. There's no type of garden or things that you have to include brilliant in the old days in the old days we used to have a thing and i think it is quite it's the principle of what this means which probably continues is that we used to have a thing called the 40 minute rule and a garden should be able to maintain a visitor's interest for 40 minutes now that doesn't mean it has to be big enough for them to take 40 minutes to walk around it Right. What it means is that even in a small garden, there may be a selection of plants that are interesting enough that if you're there with a friend, you'll probably look at a small group of plants and chat about them together for 10 or 15 minutes mm-hmm. without actually moving. Yep. <laughs> and that principle of engaging the visitor is, is what continues to be the sort of benchmark when we're looking at gardens. But it, calls, it can be achieved. In, and the three characteristics that we're looking for are... 
quality, interest, and variety. Yep. And you can have those three in in equal or, or not equal parts, but it, you should have you should have one of them. Okay. Okay. The, the the main reason, to be honest, nowadays for our and we do we do visit and talk to the owners. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a thorough inspection, but it is in in the sense that we do need to be up to speed for the whole health and safety thing. Yeah. So when we inspect the garden boiler open, it is normally to check out whether there are hazards, like a tricky path, a large deep pond, all the usual things. And if there are, you know, we, the garden owner has to flag them up with signs that we provide. Or in extreme cases, you know, you will visit. Uh, sometimes you'll visit a garden open for us, and there'll be a sign saying, "Sorry, uh, uh, no access Area beyond closed, here." Or, yeah. That means. You know, all that sort of stuff, yeah. <laughs> because we provide in, we provide a comprehensive insurance policy that covers every single garden opening through the year, yeah. and we need to we need to stick to the term for that. Yeah. Um, but so it, it, it's more the, the the what we're checking when we gardens come into the scheme is it, it, it's the sort of philosophy of making sure that the visitor is going to have an interesting time. We try and make it clear in a garden's description that appears on the website and in the book, you know, what type of garden, because the main, the, what we need to avoid is a visitor driving for an hour to garden and then they turn up and it's completely different to what they've been led to believe it's going mm. to be like. Yeah, That's definitely. what we have to avoid, which generally we're pretty successful at. Yes. George, the... Um... The National Garden Scheme Yellow Book is pretty iconic. I mean, I've got one uh, on my table at home. Um, but in this digital age, will it continue in the future? I, I think the short answer is yes. It, it, it continues in in in, and, it, and its purpose has slightly has changed slightly, and it's become uh, it's moved into the realm. I wouldn't say it's going as far as being a collector's item. Them, but it's a smaller audience of people who really treasure having it every year. And I mean, when I first started writing about gardens in the in the well, about the National Garden Scheme in the early eighties, I, I know for a fact that they they printed and sold more than a hundred thousand copies of the book every year. Oh, and right. it spent a few weeks in the in the softback non-fiction bestseller list. Goodness. Mm, we yeah. we're producing a far smaller quantity of books now, but the audience who it goes to are absolute devotees. And um, yeah, for our garden owners, there's a pride in being in the book in print that you never would quite duplicate if you were just on our website online. It's not the same. Yeah. So, so I think. Certainly, for the foreseeable, there will always be there will always be that audience who who love getting it. We had a I had a rather wonderful revelation a few years ago. We were uh, unexpectedly left a quite substantial legacy by somebody, a, a single man lived on his own in Twickenham, who we knew nothing about, and I engaged with the solicitor who was acting as the executor, and he said, um, "Why didn't you meet me?" at the property and we can have a talk about the, the our client which they didn't know much about him we went in 
all we knew that he had divided, he had no family dependents, he divided his estate three ways between us, Battersea Dogs Home and the hospice where he died. And when we went into the, his house in Twickenham, there on the bookshelves were rows of books about dogs and three whole rows of NGS yellow books. Oh, how <laughs> wonderful. It was a bit of a light bulb moment, really. Of course. You yeah. realise yeah. how important we have become to mm. that chap's life, which was really humbling. Mm, yeah, but, and I guess on the subject of uh, books, you've been a much accomplished author of cricket books, uh, George, and I believe you've yeah. written some gardening books as well, haven't you? Can you tell us a little bit more? I have, I have, I've written in a, in a total of eleven gardening books. Most of them, I have to say, some because I some years ago, uh, my early career was effectively spent as a full-time freelance author journalist writing almost exclusively early years about cricket but then mainly about gardens and my sort of working pattern I'd be working on a book a year possibly for 18 months and a selection of freelance journalism and editing. Um, I was very fortunate I started my first garden articles were published for the Field magazine. I was working with another journalist on this big cricket encyclopedia who who contributed regularly to the field and he said he knew I was interested in writing about gardens he said look the field are looking to do some garden articles and they don't really do them I think you should submit some that was in 1979 and I did and I then had a what sounded to be quite for me quite clever idea of writing um, an article to time with the fact that in 1980 the Queen Mother was 80 and the field were doing a whole cross-section of articles about her interests and I suggested doing something about her gardens. And mm. I wrote to her office. And rather to my amazement, they came back with a positive to say that they would be happy for me to write about her three gardens, all of which were completely private. Uh, the Royal Lodge, which was her home in Windsor Park, uh, Burke Hall, which is currently King Charles's favourite home, and the Castle of May in Caithness. Oh, wow. And... So that led to my first book, which was about, which was called Royal Garden, and it included those three and all the other gardens that you'd know of, like Sandringham, and and that sort of kicked off my garden book writing career. And 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 the last one I did was published in 2014, and and I hope when I move into semi-retirement that I will be doing more. But That's right good. now, I don't have a lot of time. Yeah. And did you manage to look round the gardens of the Queen Mother whilst writing? Oh, yeah, no, I did. No, I did, absolutely. It was rather fascinating. All quite different. Um, The Royal Lodge was very much where she gardened with with her husband, King George VI, who was also very keen. And they commissioned Geoffrey Jellicoe to make some alterations to the garden for them there in the 30s. He also worked for them at Sandringham. The garden at Burke Hall is rather wonderful, sort of beautiful slightly sort of in a, in a bowl okay. typical Scottish combination of a, of a flower and vegetable garden no they were great absolutely mm. fascinating Chris organised a few trips here and we went to Highgrove a few times and yeah. I mean again that's another lovely royal garden yeah, to yeah. go and yes, look around isn't it yeah, yeah they were certainly good yeah no fascinating yeah George, on, on the subject of, of the, the gardens uh, which open under the National Garden Scheme obviously there's a lot of debate at the moment about growing plants peat free 
yeah. What's the what's the feeling within the NGS uh, about that? With obviously all your 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 over three and a half thousand gardens who maybe sell a few plants. I would say that for the vast majority of our gardens, we're pretty much pushing it an open door. They, we we have a, a section about gardening peat tree in our sustainability statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reiterate the target date of of 2025 which you know most other gardening organizations are signed up to what what we say is that you know it's it's advisory what we wouldn't as an organized organization need to make a decision about depending on what the broader view of the industry is when we get to 25 is 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 i would hope that we would go on with it being advisory possibly slightly more strongly worded rather than it being yeah, we're saying to people if you grow your plants in peat you can't open for us indeed yeah i don't i would hope we would get to that yeah i think i think that's obviously the, the commercial pressures of um well nurseries now means that compost generally coming out of garden centers and diy stores is, is peat free so it should be a lot easier for for those uh, those gardeners to to get hold of those sort of products to grow plants, but I suspect they're like all like we're finding at the garden centre here. It's a bit of a, a learning curve having to manage these new composts as well. But that's probably another another story. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was. I think there's been a lot of progress in recent years, um, and of course, a lot of our garden owners do do grow plants to sell at their open days, and mm. we 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 sell in the region of three hundred fifty thousand pounds worth of plants through the year at our open days. Okay. Um, but the great majority of which have all been buys by the garden owners themselves. And yeah, you know, they are very plugged into this the whole debate about not using peat and and, and yeah. generally very supportive of it. I think that's true, yeah, mm. without a doubt. And, um, how about yourself, George? Are you a keen gardener still? And do you have any particular sort of styles or favourite plants or groups of plants? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've got pretty Catholic taste of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I love gardening. I love the whole sort of seasonality of gardening. And um, you know, particularly at times of the year like this, where you you sense there's real change yep. um and and what what what's happening to plants at different times of the year i particularly love that little the group of sort of small late winter early spring plants like aconite cyclamen of course snowdrops although i'm not at all an expert erythrins all those sort of little things that uh, uh, that sort of light up every people's gardens at this time of the year I'm a great fan of I love Viticelli clematis, but I am a bit of a I'm I'm a bit of an all rounder. There are very few plants I don't like. Put it that way. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> very <laughs> diplomatic answer. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, George, the, the tradition of going to visit gardens, I'm sure Peter would agree, is uh, is obviously having a nice cup of tea and a slice of cake mm. as your reward. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> What's your favourite cake when you go, go to a garden with a pot of tea, which traditionally ends your visit to a garden? I believe your president, of course, is the a legendary cake maker and uh, cook, Mary Berry. Yes. Has Mary it is. ever cooked you a cake? Well, funnily enough, she has. A few years ago, I, was, I always take my quite small team here at the office. We have a work outing once a year, and we go to normally one, possibly two, rather special garden destinations 
So we've been to the Horatio's Garden in Salisbury, and one year our president Mary was generous enough to invite us, and we went to her garden, and she gave us a pretty, a pretty spiffing tea, frankly, <laughs> and it, it had, <laughs> including the most delicious, which I think is pretty high up in my my panoply of favourite cakes, a, a delicious Victoria sponge, and on a Hot summer's day, I think there's not much that beats a freshly made Victoria sponge. If it's possibly more this time of year, a, a quite dense chocolate cake with a few walnuts in it, pretty delicious. <laughs> Sounds good. But, but our, my, the garden owner's tea is a very, very important part. And in fact, there are a number of people who whose first response when being asked whether they would open their garden is oh I couldn't possibly I couldn't do the tea they've got a wonderful garden they're, they're quite confident about their gardening skills mm. but they're terrified that their tea wouldn't be up to scratch <laughs> wow <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that's surprising. Surprising. so we have you know we help them but then you know they get friends who bake cakes and it, it's a proper mm. you know lot that's one of the lovely things NGSA they're proper friends and family community days and friends bake cakes and all this sort of stuff and it, it goes on for weeks before the actual event um yeah yeah good. Oh, that's good and as you've agreed to come on this podcast george we thought we'll put you on the spot and ask you if you're ever stranded on a desert island what gardening implement or plant would you like to take with you and why okay i think the Plant is reasonably simple. One of my all-time favourite plants. I lived and worked in, in Cape Town for a couple of years, and I had growing in my rather scruffy garden um, the most amazing plumbago, which is, okay. is is a native. I would have a plant of plumbago because it's one of my absolute favourites. In terms that. of the garden instrument, I think I'd have something which would be part of because I'd need to keep myself occupied on this desert island and busy. So as long as I could have a luxury, and the luxury would be a small desalinating plant, my garden, <laughs> my garden implement would be something I'm very proud of. I gave my father-in-law, who is an ex-military engineer and loves this sort of thing, a, a, a very beautiful brass Edwardian lawn sprinkler. Lovely. Which makes the most wonderful noise when it's connected up. Now, to make it sustainable, this is where the desalination plant comes in. I'd have to use water that I could use sustainably. But uh, sitting on my desert island, listening to my sprinklers gently ticking away in the background would, yeah, would yeah. keep me calm. Brilliant. Oh, that's that's, low, that's a lovely choice. vision. I know exactly what you mean. They do sort of go tick, 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 tick yes. away. And yeah. then if you're really lucky, they spin around to mm. 360 degrees and that mm. makes a whole different sound, doesn't it? Yes. That's brilliant. That's very good. George, we always also like to ask our guests, do you have a, a garden-related story or anecdotes, uh, perhaps about gardening or okay. maybe the National Garden Scheme, maybe? Um. If we've got time, I've got, I've got an anecdote about the National Garden Scheme, which I think says a lot about it in two parts. The first part is going back to that A5 card in there. My favourite card of all is the one for a garden that is distinguished for the simple fact that it's raised more money for the National Garden Scheme than any other single garden. And it's the Queen, the Royal Garden, 
at Frogmore in Windsor Great Park, which has raised over £300,000. Wow. It was first opened under King George VI in 1946. But what I particularly like is on the cards of Frogmore, we're a thrifty lot at the NGS. Uh, it has at the top left is a box of the owner's name. And in capital letters, there's the king. But the thing is, and you think when one monarch dies and another one takes over, we give them a new card. No, not a bit of it. The problem <laughs> card, there's the king, scored out in pen, and the queen written underneath it. So no doubt now it's going to be the king again. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, do you want some tipex? We'll send you some tipex along if you want to tidy it up, and then you don't have to <laughs> get a new car now. That's, that's, that's a fantastic. That's a lovely story. Brilliant. Um, no, it was it, it, very funny. And, and the the oh, the other bit, just very quickly on the yellow book. I think it's probably apocryphal, but apparently there's a story that in the 1970s, the person running the national Museum scheme was amazed to get a telephone from the marketing director of one of the big Japanese car companies who said they were building a new model and they wanted the precise measurements of the yellow book because they wanted to make sure the glove compartment of this new model would fit it exactly because they <laughs> heard it was the most important publication for a car that was going to be sold in the British market to be able to carry. That's, wow. a, that's a recommendation, isn't it? That is a yeah, good <laughs> Brilliant. Nice one. Great stuff. And if someone wants to open their garden and hasn't sort of made touch with you yet, how's the easiest way to get in contact with your scheme and get their garden open to the public? Oh, well, the easiest way is just to go onto our website, which is ngf.org.uk, and they, they, they'll get steered towards probably their local county organiser or a member of their local team, because we have teams looking after the gardens in every single county all over the country. Mm -hmm. and, and the website is the sort of fount of all information for us now. But also, you know, we have very extensive social media channels. Uh, we're on all the usual, you know, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, and we also let people know about what we're doing. We've got a pretty substantial audience of people who are signed up to our e-newsletter which goes out weekly but the, the website is the sort of main main base so to speak which is updated constantly excellent so you can find out about how to join or where to go and visit i guess exactly. that, that's a brilliant yeah, yeah. Well, George, i'm certainly looking forward to this year to uh, well i want to start on some uh, snowdrop gardens over the next week or two but uh, thank you very much for your time today it's been an absolute delight we've learned so much about the wonderful work the National Garden Scheme does and how important it's been and continues to be uh, in the future. Thank you very much, George. Well, thank you. It's been really enjoyable. I've loved it and um, I love chatting with you both. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more 
at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.